Hi folks, Patrick here. Welcome back to another episode of Bibliology, the podcast where I speak to Bible scholars and academic theologians about their recent research and its implications for communities of faith today. Today on the show, you'll get to hear my recent conversation with Dr. Jonathan Bernier from Regis College in Toronto, Canada. Now, Jonathan has released a book recently entitled Rethinking the Dates of the New Testament, the Evidence for Early Composition. It's not hard to guess what this volume is about. It's, of course, um, revisiting the question of when the New Testament was written and looking to give a, a fresh answer to that question. And you can find a link to this in the description. But I just want to say that, you know, if you're like me and you love those almost detective-like historical works where the author's just sifting through data, just filing through it, looking for little hints and clues and evaluating evidence, just thinking really hard and critically about these issues. This is this is the book for you. This is a fantastic uh, read and um, very uh, historically rigorous. So if you like that, get your hands on it and um, yeah, listen to this conversation as well. Share it with uh, friends or whoever and um, once again thanks a million for listening and uh, I'll speak to you guys all soon. Hello Jonathan it's great to have you on the show welcome welcome aboard. Yep, Thank you good to be here and um, we're going to be speaking um, today about your study in rethinking the dates of the New Testament um, mm-hmm. and of course the evidence for early composition this is going to be published by Baker Academic uh, next month. Yep yeah, in fact, I just received word that the the physical copies have arrived at Baker. Okay. Just received that word today, so it's great. moving along. Great, great stuff. Before we get on to the um, the exciting content of your book, I was like, it's one of those books where I was just actually genuinely thrilled reading it. You know, I just love it when it's like thrilling historical research. So, congratulations on that. But um, great. thank you. Before we get on to uh, speaking about the content, I'd like think the audience would like to get to know you a little bit as a person yep. um mm-hmm. so um of course the first thing that um some might notice and some de- don't this is kind of the point of the question is that you're you're canadian um mm-hmm. so how often are you mistakenly identified as american and um how should a non-native like like me uh, distinguish between the two accents um yeah i mean generally speaking before the pandemic and the reason I say that is because since the pandemic, I basically haven't left Canada. <laughs> so, you know, no one's right mistaken me for an American at this point. Uh, mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, generally speaking, if I travel in the U.S., which is where most of my travels are, I mean, most Canadians live within an hour of the U- to two hours of the U.S. border. And the um, so most of my travels are in the U.S. Yeah, as a general rule, unless I tell people I'm Canadian, they have... They have no idea, you know, and in terms of accent, I mean, uh, the English Canadian accent is pretty, pretty close to the New England accent. You know, again, I think most Americans meeting me would just assume I'm from somewhere like Connecticut, you know, until they hear, mm-hmm. until they hear otherwise, you know, so uh, I would, uh, you know, it's it's very common that the, that people assume you're American and, uh and really, there's I can't really. There's nothing that could distinguish, you know, as, <laughs> as a non-native that uh, that you would be able to distinguish. Right. So. Enough. Are you um, by any chance in one of the uh, Canadian? No, sorry, not the Canadian. The French-speaking parts of Canada, or is that? Uh, 
my heritage is French Canadian, hence my last name, Bernier, you know, and, and I have a bit of a French, uh, I do have some of a, a French accent because uh, my, my grandfather was French Canadian. So I've picked up yeah, some of yeah. that, but, um, but no, I'm very, very much really Anglo Canadian. I mean, you know, my, my family's been in English Canada for, you know, three generations now on my father's side and go back okay. we go back to the revolutionary war on my mother's <laughs> so, okay you know, yeah, so, yeah yeah fair enough and um you were of course in a canadian university at regis college and yep. um my my other question is that this is of course a jesuit school and mm-hmm. um is this a movement that you identify with and if so how does it shape your your daily life uh well I, i'm not a jesuit uh but i do respect the jesuits a great deal i mean i wouldn't I wouldn't have taken a job at one of their colleges if I didn't. And Regis is great that, you know, we have, uh, we are one of the seven Jesuits colleges in the English speaking world where young Jesuits go for their MDivs. So we, uh, only one of three in North America. So, yeah, we're, we're small, but we are, we have a much larger impact than our, our size has, uh, suggests. And, you know, it's a great place to be. And, um, you know, I've done work on the on the work of Bernard Lonergan, who was a Jesuit theologian. You know, and uh, and I and I I'm executive director of the Lonergan Research Institute at Regis. So, you know, it's it's certainly contributed to my thought. Um, mm-hmm. You know, more than certainly the Jesuits. You know, Jesuit thought has certainly contributed more than anything else to my to my thinking. Mm-hmm. I would say. Mm-hmm. And you know, uh, what is like. For those of us, um, I'm I'm not Catholic personally myself. I would be um, kind of more evangelical. But like, how would um, how should what's the first thing we should know that distinguishes Jesuits? Like, wh- why is it a distinct movement? Yeah, the Jesuits um, five hundred years ago were founded uh, as a um, you know as a uh, as a holy order and they um, as a religious community and they. They, uh, there's a very much an emphasis on the life of the mind, very much an emphasis upon um, what's often called interiority, upon examining the uh, the inner life and and understanding what's going on with one one's emotions. I mean, it's, it's actually very, you know, it's very similar in a lot of ways to what later now emerges in psychoanalysis. I mean, the language is mm-hmm. different and the theory mm-hmm. is different, but this idea that, you know, that much of our behavior is driven by these inner, these things going on internally that we need to examine. Now it's of course a very different basis based in, you know, 16th century Catholic, you know, uh, spirituality, et cetera, you know, but, uh, you know, very much that sort of focus. So. Yeah. It would, would be interesting to see if Freud had some, uh, Jesuit influence in his life, wouldn't it? No, I, I mean, not that I know of, but a lot of this goes back to interpretations of certain, strands of thought within both Judaism and Christianity that develop maybe in parallel. But yeah, there's very interesting mm. yeah, similarities there. And um, of course, your occupation at this college mm-hmm. is, that, is that you're a scholar um, and yep. um, you're focused on historical questions for the most part. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious to know that um, what is a historical question about the Bible that intrigues you, but you don't think we'll ever have an answer for? Uh, that's... I think probably one of the big ones is one that at least interests me is even though I'm a New Testament scholar is exactly what's going on with the Exodus. You know, just the material, you know, the book of Exodus, everything is so 
it's so, um, you know, the event is so early and the material is, is really hard to correlate with what's going on in terms of the Near Eastern documents. Any attempt to try to figure out when the exodus happened, you've got about 400 year range that people are predicting, you know, are, are coming up with. And then, mm-hmm. and that's even apart from the question of where it actually happened. And so I just think the nature of the, the nature of the evidence, I don't know if we'll ever have a definite answer about, you know, what exactly mm-hmm. happened when it happened. And, and I'd like to have an answer, but <laughs> <laughs> that's just reality. Yeah. Yeah. There's, you know, so many interpretations. You have the early date, you have the late date, you have the, yeah. the, the Levite hypothesis, which is, um, I yeah. think is, I think is probably one of the more interesting ones. And yeah. Uh, yeah and you of course have the mythological interpretation, which I um, disagree with uh quite quite a lot as a as an yeah. evangelical but um anyway um that's probably one of my top three as well so we're on the same page yeah. there no it's, it's, um, it's very interesting so. yeah and um we'll get on to talking about your book um which is of course um available in the description for any of the audience something you know at the outset we'll just talk about a few general questions first so you refer to the bible in your acknowledgement section as the the sacred scriptures, and this is, of course, on, on this podcast, this is something we're very interested in, you know, uh, theological um, mm. beliefs and how they intersect with findings of biblical scholarship and everything. And um, I'm just wondering, do you think, is there, is this a belief that you have to bracket um, during your historical research, or is there a place for historical analysis that is um, that is informed by faith commitments? Well, first off, about the term sacred scripture, I, I didn't even realize I'd used that term until you pointed it out in the questions you sent me. And I used it simply because that's, um, in Catholic higher ed circles, that's a term that's normally used. Mm-hmm. You know, instead of like, you know, in Catholic, in Protestant or non-confessional centers, you, you know, you have biblical studies. Mm-hmm. Catholic tend to use the term, Catholic schools tend to use the term sacred scripture study of sacred scripture so it just i'm just used to it on a curriculum basis you know just seeing that and so i just used it um Mm -hmm. and so there was no um you know there was there was no content beyond familiarity with my use of it really but i think you know i do think sometimes i you know i always say to my uh you always repeat to my students you know yesterday we were talking about the traditions that peter went to rome after um, you know, and that he spent, you know, spent a good chunk of his time of his life, or at least a few years in Rome, and died there. Um, that, uh, and of course, this is very, you know, very important for for many Roman Catholics, uh, much more than it would be for evangelicals uh, for mm-hmm. a number of reasons. Uh, I think most of which are obvious. That, and I said, you know, as a historian, I can say, yeah, you know, there's pretty good evidence that 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 he did die in Rome, et cetera, but. You know, ultimately, I have to say, if the if the evidence says, you know, if the evidence says otherwise, if the evidence clearly says that he didn't go to Rome, if there is some, if new evidence found that the, says that, then I have to, you know, as a as a historian, acknowledge that, and then I have to think through after that, what does that mean for faith? You know, I have to have, mm-hmm. you know, that, uh, and the reason for this ultimately, the way I always frame it, frame it for them, and in my experience, especially Jesuit students. Uh, although we have a lot of lay students as well, but Jesuit students or students who are interested in training with Jesuits really get this right away. That the way I always put it is ultimately your faith has to be based in integrity. You know, if it's based in, if your faith is based in things that are demonstrably false, then there's, 
there's a problem. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. And so, Absolutely. you know, and, and so that tends to be how I come at it, you know? And so what I tend to say to students is, you know, I think history and theology often do not come in attention. Often what we can discover historically and what we believe theologically can cohere very well. But we have to be honest with ourselves and show integrity and say they don't always. And then we have to work that through. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One of the expected criticisms of your book is um, yeah. is your is your willingness to consider the external claims of of the church fathers, and mm-hmm. of, and of course um, some scholars would would just dismiss this material as a kind of apologetic rhetoric, that sort of thing. I've I've heard them use that kind of kind of uh, condescending language before, or. Um, or even mm-hmm. they wouldn't necessarily be talking about, you know, what the church fathers say that even, you know, the the manuscripts, you know, that have the names Matthew and Mark on them, mm-hmm. they would they would say, no, that's just an apologetic interest. Um, they shouldn't be taken at face value. And I'm wondering, you know, how would you justify your choice to consider this this material? I think the first, I mean, the basic justification is is that the material exists. We have to we have to work through it, and even if working through it means ultimately concluding. No, there's problems here. We have to, you know, we can't affirm what the what uh, these documents say. And 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 if you've read from my book, you know that there are places where I say, look, no, this this particular tradition just simply doesn't work. It doesn't make sense. You know, specifically, I, I think you have to do. A, I don't think it's impossible that Matthew, that the, that someone named Matthew, or the man we know as Matthew, Saint Matthew, uh, wrote the Gospel of Matthew. But I think, I don't think the arguments for it are as strong or that works as well for say mark or luke and i think we have to be honest about that and we have to acknowledge that mm-hmm. the flip side is is that we also have to acknowledge that we can't simply say all patristic evidence is by definition apologetic and, and ignore it you know we you know we can't we can neither say it's all true nor can we say it's all false we have to work through it mm-hmm. you know and so that would be my my answer with my response ultimately would be that you know, it's no more critical to, re- to reject anything than it is critical to accept everything. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, of course, the practice of attributing works to important figures, you know, just to, like, make them, uh, to give them sort of an authority, that that was yeah. certain, that certainly happened, we would have to acknowledge, oh, in, absolutely. The, in yeah. the Mediterranean world. But I suppose, you know, there... Another thing we have to factor in, in in is that sometimes people wrote the books that were that were attributed to them as right. well. You know, and, and, and we have to ask: It's possible that that Mark was attributed, the Gospel of Mark was attributed to Mark because someone wanted to associate the book with his name. It's also possible that Mark is well known precisely because he wrote the Gospel of Mark. That writing the Gospel of Mark is what made his reputation. I mean, these are both equally plausible scenarios in and of themselves and so we have to work through and ask which which is most likely in any yeah. given situation and, and recognize that we're going to find that some some traditions add up some traditions don't and we'll just have to accept that yeah mm-hmm. yeah which of these books of like the new testament and these other extra canonical ones mm-hmm. that you discuss are you most and least confident of dating early so i think I think the arguments for for a pre seventy date of the synoptics of Mark, Matthew, and Luke, and Acts uh, included in that uh, broader uh, heading of synoptic material. I think I, I'm very confident. I feel very good about those 
obviously the Paul, you know, the undisputed Paulines, no one seriously puts out seven later than uh later than about 60, you know, maybe into the early 60s, it's certainly not past 70. So, you know, those books I'm very confident of. Uh, the Didache, I leave open the possibility that, that it could be into the early second century, but I'm I'm more, much more inclined to think that it's an earlier text than that. Um, some of the, uh, you know, James, I feel very confident uh, because I, precisely because I think James, I'm very confident James wrote James that I'm very confident that since he died in 62, it must date earlier than that. Uh, in terms of least confident, the, the letters of John, simply because there's so little material in it, in them to really, really make a strong argument mm-hmm. for either early or late. Mm-hmm. You know, so I'm less, less confident of those. Uh, and that has more to do with the nature of the material and what we can actually say than anything else. You know, Second Peter. Second Peter is a classic problem because Second Peter is so seems to be so different from First Peter. Mm. You know, just when we're on Second Peter, I was fascinated about the argument made by Robinson, who is, of course, the scholar mm-hmm. you're leaning on a lot. That Second Peter is actually basically Second Jude. Um, mm-hmm. I, thought th- I thought that was a fascinating position that I'd um, I'd not considered yeah. before. But you're, of course, kind of. Uh, very agnostic on that, aren't you? The idea that it's... yeah. So the the argument, just for your for your viewers, I'll explain that Jude and Second Peter are very similar. Everyone knows this. There's much material in common. So Robinson, as far as I know, he's the first person who suggested this. I don't think anyone's really followed him here. Suggests that actually Jude and Second Peter have so much in common because they were they were both written by Jude, and so uh, and it's interesting. It's intriguing. And I think when you get into the details, I think there's reasons to think that that's not the case. But it is certainly, it's certainly intriguing. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, um, yeah, and I think it's actually one of the more exciting parts of his book is that that suggestion. Yeah, so. I just that's one of the my favorite things about New Testament scholar for scholarship is just there's so many little intriguing suggestions. And one also yeah. that I've heard, for for instance, is um, you know the didache. Um, the mm-hmm. idea, and I think I heard this from um, Mark Goodicker. Um, he's also in okay. the field. He said that he said that one of his colleagues thinks that that this is actually the um, the letter that was written at the Council of Jerusalem. I don't know if you've yeah. heard that theory before. But that's enticing that, that theory. Although I don't know if it's true, but it's interesting, isn't it? It is interesting, and I've um, I spent some time thinking about that. I, two of my two of my courses in my regular rotation are Apostolic Fathers. And acts so I acts and Didache I often think about in connection with each other and I yeah it's it's very interesting to me I think the Didache is probably part of the reason I think the Didache is early is that it seems to be dealing with some issues similar to what we see at the Acts fifteen count so I'm I'm not as convinced that it is the letter because it's it's so different from the letter that Luke produces in Acts mm-hmm. but. That it's material that that was created around the same time to deal with similar or the same issues. I think it makes a great deal of sense to me. We'll move on to focus on some of the particulars at this point. We've spoken briefly about Second Peter, but um, mm-hmm. the one that I find particularly fascinating is is First Peter. It's one that isn't often yeah. discussed in this context, but um, that one, of course, has uh, much more of a claim to be an authentic Petrine letter. And um, I actually have a quote here from your book um, where you 
where you say, Petrine authorship of 1 Peter with the Roman provenance would be consistent with a compositional date, likely no earlier than 60 AD and no later than 69, the latest possible year of Peter's death. And of course, you you likewise say that you think it's you're convinced it's authentic. And so what what leads you briefly to this to this conclusion? So I think ultimately, you know, you look at the arguments against Petrine authorship as things like, well, Peter couldn't have written this. Well, first off, I actually don't know Peter couldn't have written this. I mean, I don't know what Peter's level of literacy was. It's just, it's it's really just, it's it's really assumption to say he couldn't write it. You know, it it assumes that it assumes that someone, the fisherman from Galilee, couldn't have written Greek. We don't know that that's actually true. We also don't know that we don't know that Peter couldn't have learned Greek in the thirty years that he was spending that he was involved with Christianity. So uh, the other thing, you know, that um, is often said is that it's excluded. You know, the possibility he wrote with a scribe is often neglected. It's entirely possible he could have dictated this to mm-hmm. someone. In fact. Of course, we we know that Papias uh, reports explicitly that Mark, you know, that Mark carried out some sort of role like that. So there already is tradition that Peter had some sort of assistance in in his in his uh, in his work. So you know, I think those two things together, you know, I think you know, there's really no good reason to exclude Petrine authorship. Bart Ehrman is, of course, kind of your um, your uh, opposite in this. <laughs> this conversation because he um he argues in his works on forgeries that letters were always dictated to scribes and there's no evidence that they were translated or had a more expansive role in letter writing and i suppose when it comes to like the the authorship of first peter most people would say that you know he at least would need to have a scribe because the the standard of greek is so so high you know it's some of the best greek in, in the new testament so um, how would you respond to, to this to this claim? You, of course, do that in the, I think, when you mentioned the epistle to James, but, you know, you can yeah. feel free to respond to this. Too, yeah. you know? I think there is evidence. I mean, there, and, and actually, Ehrman presents it. Ehrman presents evidence that, you know, scribes would sometimes do take on, or even secretaries, maybe be a better word, would sometimes take on work of beyond just purely dictating, would do more compositional work. Uh, he rules it out saying it's someone of, Peter's socioeconomic class wouldn't have had access to that sort of work. I don't know that's true, you know. So, um, and in any case, you know, it's a, you know, we know that we know this stuff happened. I mean, Josephus has people helping him with his Greek, you know. So we know that we know this sort of work was happening. So I don't think it's a, I don't see it as a huge uh, as a huge problem. I think uh, you know, really, what it comes down to is there's no direct evidence that someone at the you know, towards the the middle or lower end of the spectrum, had access to these sort of resources, but there's also no evidence that they didn't. You know, so it sort of goes both ways. And I suppose one thing you'd have to say is that we don't really know whether Peter. Well, actually, presumably, like he would have climbed pretty high up the social class if he's becoming involved in a in a growing um, religious <laughs> religious group. Pres- presumably, yeah. he would kind of be. He wouldn't just be a, a Galilean fisherman his whole life, you know. He, he well, was. exactly. That's the one thing we know about him is that he's not actually a Galilean fisherman his whole life. So to to make the assumption, to assume that, to assume we know what a Galilean fisherman could have, could and could not have done 
and could not could and could not have learned is already problematic. But then when we're dealing with someone who doesn't spend his whole life as a Galilean fisherman, it becomes doubly problematic. I mean, you know, these sort of um, these sort of arguments that um, these sort of deductive arguments that a Galilean fisherman could not have written First Peter. Peter was a Galilean fisherman, therefore Peter could not have written First Peter. Is I think extremely um, extremely problematic on several levels. But I mean, because that really is the argument that's being made. It's the same argument being made with James. You know, mm-hmm. not a fisherman, but the same basic structure. You know, so mm-hmm. there's like a passage in Acts where the like Peter I think is mentioned as illiterate. Mm-hmm. But then it's ironic because the same people who cite that passage to prove that Peter was illiterate are uncomfortable using Luke to show pretty much anything else. Yeah. So, and know. actually, as you know, as, as Chris Keefe, uh, uh, scholar Chris Keefe, who's done a lot of work on literacy and early Christianity, has pointed out, those past, that passage really doesn't say that they're illiterate. Uh, or there's, the, you know, there's these passages that talk about how these people have... Um, have all this learning when they haven't studied you know that's it's really talking about not having studied not as opposed to um not having knowledge you know mm-hmm. so the um you know it seems that they're what they say it seems actually that they're what's happening is that people are surprised by how much they know without having had the formal background the content of the verse doesn't necessarily allow you to lean on it too heavily to show illiteracy mm-hmm. and then of course also if you if you're inclined to be a minimalist with regard to the history of acts that's a double problem yeah we've had chris keith on um mm-hmm. the show he's he's a he's a great Excellent. guy really oh really, chris is great yeah yeah i'd like to to move on to some more familiar territory in this discussion and you know we've mm-hmm. kind of already been to talking about it and that's um the dating controversy is of luke acts you know luke acts is just mm-hmm. controversial on so many levels but um what of course your book is focused on the dating so could you give a brief summary of some of the more the recent controversies, and then we'll um, I'll ask you some questions on the specifics of them. Yeah, so so for the, you know, especially for your for your uh, viewers who might not know this, uh, there's been a tendency in recent, say over the last twenty years or so, to really push the date of um, of Luke Acts well into the second century. I think a lot of focus, I think, on Luke more than Acts, but of course, if you move Luke forward. Acts has to as well, and uh, you know a lot of the connection has to do with people seeing evidence in the in Luke Acts that they that Luke and Acts knows Josephus. I don't think he does. I think it's I think it's in fact I think it's actually I would go the opposite of where others go. I would say it's very clear he doesn't. And uh, also, you know, the argument that's emerged in the last fifteen years or so that that rather than Marcion reworking Luke's Gospel. Luke's gospel was actually a response to Marcion. You know, these sort of arguments. Um, I think Luke Acts is one of those frustrating situations where, you know, there's no absolute unequivocal evidence that Luke exists, the gospel of Luke exists before about Justin Martyr. You know, that, and I'm, I'm leaning here on Andrew Gregory's work of, of showing that it's not until about 150 that, that you start seeing Luke's gospel being clearly no one amongst patristic authors, even though, interestingly enough, Andrew Gregory himself is very clear and says that the gospel, gospel of Luke dates to no later than the 90s. But the fact that there, that, that there is the possibility of a later date allows for a lot of, a lot of speculation and a lot of uh, room to maneuver in. I think people, people have used that. The controversy that's shown up for me the most is the one, the idea that Luke knew the writings of Josephus. And do you 
spend yeah. a, a good amount of time on this in the book. And um, I suppose I can. I, I have a couple of reasons that I might discuss as well. But why do you think it implausible that Luke knew the writings of Josephus in a nutshell? What are some reasons you would give? Yeah. So again, I would I would say clearly that I, I and I think I, I I like to use the word implausible. I would use the word improbable. You know, I don't think it's strictly speaking impossible that Luke knew the writings of Josephus. But look, the play, you know, for two hundred years when scholars have wanted to show that Luke and Acts um, are making historical blunders, the first thing they've done is showing how it disagrees with Josephus. So to then suddenly turn around and say that he's using Josephus seems to me somewhat problematic. You have to assume that he knows Josephus, that he's leaning on Josephus, but getting everything that he's taken from Josephus wrong. You know, I think that that's... um, to problematic. I think it's much more. It's much easier to say that Josephus and Luke are both reporting upon the same events, but they're getting they're getting their reports from different places, and that means the details aren't lining up perfectly. Mm-hmm. Than to say that he's getting Josephus consistently wrong. I mean, because you have to you have to assume that he gets Josephus consistently wrong, not just fifty percent of the time. You know, if he gets Josephus right nine times and wrong one, that's a different conversation. But he gets him basically every point of contact demonstrably wrong every time. That becomes problematic. Mm-hmm. How many references is it? Is it like four or five that are normally pointed out? Or? Uh, so there's, I've never actually thought to count them. There's the reference to the census in Luke. There's uh, the ordering of... Uh, Theodos and Judas in Acts 5. There's one about the Egyptian as well, isn't there? Yes, the yeah. Egyptian. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so, um, you know, and uh, and he doesn't get that, that there's no real blunder there. Um, but the, um, you know, again, is it possible? Is it possible that Luke is sitting there with a copy of Josephus and using Josephus but altering Josephus? In way or essentially getting Josephus wrong. Is that possible? Sure. I think it's much more easier to just simply say that he didn't know Josephus, that he's getting this material from somewhere else. Mm. I think one of the issues with saying that he's getting Josephus wrong is that you basically have to say that Luke is very literarily sophisticated. Like, you know, everyone Mm -hmm. would agree that like he has some of the best Greek in the New Testament. So we have to say, yeah. if we buy this hypothesis, that he is really good at writing, but his reading comprehension is just dreadful, which just seems or, weird. Yeah. yeah, Either that or we have to say that he has alternative traditions on each of these issues to Josephus and prefers those traditions. But at that point, why even have Josephus then? Yeah. If he's getting yeah. it from somewhere else and he's consistently preferring the other place, then why do we need Josephus? So again... Like many things in this, I can't prove that he didn't know Josephus, but it seems to me not, you know, him knowing Josephus creates a lot more problems than it solves, it seems to me. Yeah. I, I don't mean to personally attack any of the people who have advanced this view, but, you know, it kind of does smack of intellectual arrogance to say that we can interpret Josephus now better than someone who spoke this dialect of Greek as his first language, you know. I mean, it's, uh, but I mean, I think, I mean, it's also just, I mean, we're dealing with things where, you know, he's just giving different details. It's not just a matter of interpretation. It's just different details. You know yeah. I mean? Yeah. I mean, if, if, if Josephus is, I'm sorry, if Josephus is right on the history that he presents 
then Luke, when he presents that same history, is wrong. I mean, there's just no, there's just no other way around it, and uh, and vice versa. If Luke is right, then Josephus is wrong. Uh, so, the um, to call attention to to really lean heavily on the places where he's most clearly at variance with Josephus, I think, is problematic to showing that Josephus is is a source. Mm-hmm. But I, I think that there's a, a broader tendency these days to want to see Greek literature behind as much of the New Testament and, and even the Old Testament as possible. And I think this is part of that, mm-hmm. that tendency. With all that kind of uh, discussion about um, implausible uh, scenarios, um, you, of course, have... Um, you, of course, are pretty confident that Luke, the physician, wrote um, Luke Acts. And I'll just um, I'll just have a quote here. And that you advance this hypothesis, actually, at the end of your writing, where you mm-hmm. say that Luke spent the two years that Paul was in Caesarea undertaking the research for, and perhaps also writing his gospel. He made several trips back and forward from Caesarea to Jerusalem, but spent little, if any, time in Galilee. It is not unreasonable to conclude that during this time he sought out eyewitnesses to Jesus's life. Now, uh, some people, of course, uh, will disagree vehemently with you on that one. Mm-hmm. But um, what are some uh, what are some positive reasons um, you give for for dating Luke Acts early and for taking this traditional? Yeah. Yes, I, I would say first off that um, I suggested two years in Caesarea because it seems a plausible time when he could have been doing that research. But I'm less concerned with that than um, than arguing just broadly that it's that it's probably dates no later than about 62, 63. And the reason for that is, you know, I re- I can't get past the ending of of Acts. You know, and, uh, Acts spends a full quarter of the book is dedicated to Paul's legal troubles to get him to Rome, and then Acts suddenly ends with, oh yeah, so he hung up for two years under house arrest. You know, everything was cool. See you later. And we hear nothing about how this, we don't hear about how the appeal to the emperor is resolved. We don't hear about any of this stuff that's dominated a full quarter of the book. It just, to me, it's much easier to explain by saying that it simply hasn't happened yet. That it has, it's not dealt with because it hasn't happened yet. That, to me, explains that silence much much better than, than any other explanation I've seen. And, um, and so I, you know, I think that that, uh, so, you know, again, I'll acknowledge, yes, that there are other explanations. I just don't think, I just don't think that they um, have the same explanatory power as just simply saying it. We don't hear about Paul's fate because Paul hasn't met his fate yet. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, uh, if Acts is right, dates around to that, that time, then Luke would have to date somewhat earlier. So there's two um, responses that I can think of uh, someone of the different of different of a different opinion mm-hmm. from you putting, yeah, they might say that um, well maybe um, maybe Paul wasn't martyred, <laughs> you know they might say yeah. that, um, yeah. So I mean that is, um, I mean it's fair. I mean it, um, you know, there's always a possibility that he isn't. But I mean we have first comment recording of martyrdom, you know, recording him as suggesting presenting him as a martyr. First commence pretty early, you know. Uh, so even you know, even if you, I mean, I think it's earlier than most people, but most people would put it in into the nineties. So I mean, whoever wrote first comment is almost certainly alive when Paul is alive. You know, probably a younger contemporary, but still a contemporary. So you know, well situated to know Paul's fate. So I would say, 
again, like many things in study of in study of the ancient world, is it possible that Paul wasn't martyred? Sure. Is it is it probable? Probably not. Yeah. So mm-hmm. yeah, and the the second, um, I think that's a good response. But the second thing that I think is probably uh, one of the more interesting objections to this view is that is it implausible to think that an ancient biographer, we're talking about Luke, that he would write the biography of a man still living? Um, do mm-hmm. we have any examples of this from ancient history? I can't think of any examples off the top of my head, but it, um, it doesn't mean that there aren't such examples. I just couldn't think of them as I was thinking about it. Uh, I think I think one thing that's important to remember is that Acts isn't, strictly speaking, a biography of Paul. It's a history of the church up to when, up to a certain point, you know, and and that's actually another way of phrasing it. Why would why would someone writing in the 90s, the 100s, the 110s choose the end of Paul's self house, you know, his house choose the end of Paul's house arrest to end his history of the church? Why would that be the place of all places you would end? Mm-hmm. You know, it seems a little weird to me. So you know, I can't, I can't, you know, I can't answer that second part, but I think the, about the examples from ancient history, but it seems to me that certainly someone writing current events would be completely on, on, you know, unobjectionable. We have people doing that all the time. You know, so. so we're getting towards the end of our time here and it's been uh, interesting <laughs> to uh, discuss all these uh, fascinating proposals with you, but um, I suppose um, in conclusion, you know, um, are there any large-scale implications of of the New Testament being written early, um, than written earlier than supposed? You know, other than scholars having to eat some humble pie, um, does it doesn't seem like much follows from this being true on first glance? In in any case, yeah, and and, and that's a very fair question, especially since, yeah, you, know, you would know this having looked at my at my volume. I I don't get into the implications really, and I do that, and that's intentional. I don't want to muddy the water you know it's very easy for people to to focus upon what i call it you know the implications that follow reject those for whatever reason and therefore reject everything else you know and i want to just focus really just on the question of when but i think some of the implications that come out are you know if if as i think certainly mark um i think probably matthew date before certainly Mark, at the very least, date before Paul's earliest letters, then we have to start rethinking uh, Paul's relationship to the Jesus tradition. We tend to think of it in terms of what oral teaching did he know? But now we have, you know, we have to reorient it to be, uh, does he know, does he know Mark? And that's a legitimate question, because just because Mark exists doesn't mean he knows it. It could exist and he may not have a copy. I mean, that's, that's a logical possibility that we have to, that we have to, um, that we have to deal with. I think um, some of the Arab particulars, you know, I think we tend, we tend to, and I think this is a, a hangover from the, from the Reformation. We tend to read James responding to, to Paul, James's letter as a response to Paul. I, I think, I think James's letter like, very likely predates Paul's, uh, Paul's letters. So I think that becomes, you know, I wouldn't necessarily go as far to say, I don't go as far as to say Paul is responding to James, but I think we do have to at least consider that possibility and at least consider uh, the possibility that, that, um, you know, that some of the, some of the arrangements we've come up with 
don't work. I mean, more if I could actually, as I'm speaking it out loud, and I'm really getting at. And the biggest implication, I think, is the assumption that we we tend to work with this sort of covert assumption is Paul's letters are earliest, and therefore Paul's letters have a certain um, part, priority. Whereas I tend to think that they're they're some of the some of the later material, and that makes a, a difference in how we read them. Mm-hmm. So it would be easy to to come to um, simplistic conclusions from the New Testament being written early, like. You can't, like, for example, make the the case that the New Testament is historically reliable because it was written early, you know, mm-hmm. because because there are things, you know, that were just um, that were just written a few months after, for instance, the American election last year that were just total yeah. total bogus, you know. <laughs> of no, course, exactly. I, of course, of course, I'm a Christian, so I be, I believe the New Testament witness. I'm just making the point, yeah. you know, you can't make that point, um, really. From yeah, no, absolutely, really. and and. And, and that's related to this point. I always, I always emphasize this with my students that there's this, there's this tendency to assume that earlier texts are more reliable than later texts. And there's a certain common sense that operates there that we work with. But when you really think about it, it doesn't necessarily make sense. If I'm, let's say, I'm out at the local pub and I tell a story, and then a friend, a friend who was there jumps in and corrects me and tells the story, says, no, that's not how it happened. It happened like this. That friend may be right. They've given the later version and they're right precisely because they're correcting me, you know, and, uh, and they're, you know, so we have to be aware that that late, late doesn't always mean better or late mean worse. It can actually mean better in, or in, in you know, in, in more legitimate historical, uh, more focused on historical work. Look at, look at how much more we understand about, the Soviet Union and the and the world and World War II after the Soviet Union fell, and we suddenly had access to this whole body of material we didn't have before. Someone writing about, you know, the world you know, World War II in 2022 has a huge amount of material that wasn't available in 1945. You know, so they might write a better history. Mm-hmm. You know, and mm-hmm. that, and we have to be aware of that. Those are all of my questions. So it's been um, it's been great to speak to you and to. Uh, discuss these uh, these matters and I I greatly appreciate you coming on the show well thank you again for for having me so best of luck with everything